sermon text for today is Genesis chapter 17, the whole chapter. But we will also read from the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 1, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, And all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. 
And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let us go now to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Here Paul, writing to the Galatians, who were believing upon Christ in the new covenant era, said this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you, Christians under the new covenant era, accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us as we seek to understand the scriptures and to apply them to our lives today. Genesis chapter 17, which we have just read is all about the covenant that God made with Abram and his descendants, which was sealed with the sign of circumcision. Now, the word covenant appears 13 times in that chapter. And so clearly the purpose of this chapter is to communicate the terms of the relationship that God entered into with Abram and his offspring. It is important to understand that when God enters into a covenantal relationship with people, he does so in order to establish a kingdom. I want you to have this in your minds now, and I want that thought to remain there as we continue to study the Old Testament together. When God enters into a covenantal relationship with people, He does so in order to establish a kingdom. Covenants and kingdom go together. Covenants clarify the boundaries of God's kingdom and also establish the terms for a blessed life within it. When God established His covenant with Adam in the garden, it was to clarify the boundaries of the kingdom of creation. Adam was the head of that covenant. He was to function as a king, living under the authority of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Remember, he was to keep the garden and to push out its boundaries. He was to fill the earth with his offspring and to promote the worship of God. He was to do this faithfully until he was permitted to eat of the tree of life. But in the meantime, he was to abstain from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So clearly a covenant was made with Adam there in the garden. It was the covenant of works. It was the covenant of creation, we might call it. The reward for keeping it was life eternal, whereas the punishment for breaking it was death. And what did Adam do except he broke the covenant and now we live under its curse if we are not in Christ Jesus. The point that I am making is this. 
It is a rather simple point. The covenant made with Adam clarified the boundaries and requirements for a blessed life in God's kingdom, the kingdom of creation. There is a relationship between kingdom and covenant that we must recognize. And here in Genesis 17, something very similar is happening. We must recognize this. Something very similar is happening. A covenant is being established with Abram because a kingdom is being brought into existence through him. It is not the kingdom of creation that was established at the beginning. Instead, it is the kingdom of Israel. The covenant being established with Abram is not the covenant of works or of grace, but it is the Abrahamic covenant, which is the beginning of the old covenant. Kingdoms and covenants go together. To have a kingdom, there must be a king, citizens, and land. And here in Genesis 17, we see that all three of these things are being marked off in the covenant that God transacted with Abram. God is a supreme supreme king over Abram and Israel. But notice that in this covenant, God also promised to both Sarai and Abram that kings would come from them. Did you catch that? Kings will come from you, Abram was told. Now concerning citizens... The offspring of Abram and Sarai would be as numerous as the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven. And concerning land, we learn in this covenant that Canaan would belong to them. And so the covenant that God transacted with Abram made all of this clear. It marked off the boundaries of this kingdom that God was bringing into existence. The people, land, and kings were all identified here And this covenant established the terms for a blessed life within this kingdom. This covenant established the terms for a blessed life within Canaan for the citizens of this kingdom. Abram and his offspring, we learn here, were obligated, notice, to keep this covenant. Did you hear it? Abram, as for you and for your offspring, you are to keep this covenant. If they kept it, They would personally be blessed in the land. If they broke it, what would happen to them? They would be cut off from it, we are told. They would be cut off from the land, just as Adam was cut off from the land. But nothing could undo the promises of God, for their fulfillment was contingent only upon what? Not man's obedience, but God's faithfulness. As we consider Genesis 17... It is important for us to do so in three parts, I think. First, we should observe that the promises of God that were made previously to Abram are here restated and they are clarified. Secondly, we need to observe that the law of circumcision was added to the promises that were previously made. And thirdly, we should recognize Abraham's obedience. First of all, brothers and sisters, with all of those remarks being introductory, let us consider that the promises of God previously made to Abram are here in this text, restated, clarified, and even expanded. In other words, the covenant that is established here in Genesis 17 is not a brand new covenant. It is not a brand new covenant, but it is a reiteration, an expansion, 
expansion of the covenant that was already transacted with Abram as recorded in Genesis 15. Do you remember that, brothers and sisters? It was just a couple of weeks ago that we looked at Genesis chapter 15. And in verse 18, we read, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Do you remember how that covenant was transacted with Abram? He saw a vision. Animals were divided. God walked through it. Abram observed. But a covenant was transacted with Abram on that day. That covenant, what I am saying, is that that covenant and this covenant are not different covenants, but they are one and the same. And this covenant is built upon the promises that were made to Abram, beginning all the way back in Genesis 12, concerning land, offspring, being blessed of God, and being a blessing to the nations of the earth. Genesis 12 through 17, they all hang together. This is what I am saying now. They all hang together. The promises of Genesis 12 develop into a covenant. And when the Abrahamic covenant is fully developed, it is sealed with the sign of circumcision, as seen here in Genesis 17. In verse 1 we read, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me. And be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Uh, The Hebrew word translated as make in verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you, can be translated in a variety of ways. And it is probably best to understand it to mean to constitute or to establish by law. Seems to be the most consistent with the context. The covenant that God made with Abram in Genesis 15 is here being further established with the giving of the law. Of circumcision. Notice also that Abram is here commanded to walk before the Lord and to be blameless. Abram's obedience was not the cause of the promises of God being made to him previously. You understand that. God did not come to Abram and say, because of your obedience, because of your righteousness, I am going to do this. I'm going to establish this relationship with you. But instead, quite the opposite, we see that his obedience is commanded for the establishment of this covenant In other words, because of what I have done for you now, you are to walk in obedience to me. More on that in a moment. I think it is also interesting to note that 13 years had passed between that episode where Sarai gave her servant Abram as a wife and the establishment of the covenant of circumcision as recorded here in Genesis 17. 13 years had passed, in other words, before what Genesis, uh, between what Genesis 16 says to us and what Genesis 17 says to us. 13 years is a long time, isn't it, brothers and sisters? For 13 years, Abram lived with Ishmael as his only son. Perhaps Abram assumed that Sarai's plan was a good one in those days, for those 13 years, despite the trouble that it had caused. Do you ever wonder what happened during those 13 years? What went on in the life of Abram? And with Sarai and with Ishmael, what was life like for them? The scriptures are entirely silent on this issue. And I think there is a point of application to be drawn from this little remark that Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to him and the fact that at least 13 years had passed since the Lord had last appeared to Abram. I want you to see that the vast majority of the Christian life consists of very ordinary days. I've made this point before, but I want to make it again. The vast majority of the Christian life consists of very ordinary days. And it is faithfulness in the ordinary days, in the ordinary mundane moments of life that is most pleasing to God. Abram's life was truly extraordinary, wasn't it? 
He was an extraordinary figure. And yet for him, even for him, the vast majority of his days were ordinary days. What did Abram do in those 13 years between the covenant that was cut and then confirmed in Genesis 15 and 17? He probably changed diapers. Do you realize that? He probably repaired fences. He cared for his sheep and for his goats. He managed his assets. He conversed with his wife. He instructed and disciplined his son. And he regularly worshipped. And ordinarily when he worshipped at the altar, he did not hear a voice or see a vision. For 13 years, Abram faithfully sojourned in the land that was not his own. And his days were very ordinary days. And yet what did he do? He just methodically walked by faith. I draw attention to this. It's a minor point, I'll admit, in the text. But I, I draw attention to this because I fear it is very common for the Christian to assume that unless they are engaged in something extraordinary, then something is lacking in their walk with the Lord. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Our, our God is the God of the ordinary. He is pleased with His people when they serve Him faithfully in the mundane things of life. Sometimes Christians are, are poked and prodded by their leaders to do something radical and extreme for Jesus. Have you ever heard an exhortation like that? And I suppose that there are times where such exhortations are appropriate. But, but here I am saying that a Christian is really truly radical when he or she lives out their faith moment by moment, day by day, Lord's day by Lord's day, doing very ordinary and mundane things in faith, obediently into the glory of God. That's rather radical if you think about it, because that indicates that the faith that the Christian has has permeated the very core of their being to where they do everything, change diapers and repair fences and manage their assets and instruct and discipline their children. They do it all, being influenced by what they believe and to the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And so 13 years had passed, but Abram walked faithfully. And do you see also that God was very stubborn in a good way during this time? Perhaps a better word to use would be faithful. Uh, God was faithful to keep His promises for all that time. Abram and Sarai, remember, thought they knew better than God. And so they took matters into their own hands. They made a mess of things. We've already learned about that. But this didn't derail God, not in the least. Where was He for those 13 years except sitting on His throne? He was waiting patiently, as it were, to bring about His plans at just the right time. And here we see that very thing. He appeared to Abram and He reiterates His promises to him. First of all, concerning the land. Look with me at verse 8 where the Lord said, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Are you listening carefully to what the Lord said to Abram? Again, I will give to you, Abram, and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Not only is this a reiteration of the promises that have been previously made, it also is a clarification and an expansion. And I am urging you here to pay careful attention. The Lord spoke to Abraham, again, I will give to you and to your offspring this land. God promised that Abram himself 
would possess the land, and not just his descendants. Would his descendants, his offspring, possess it? Yes. But here we see that Abram himself would possess it, and I am saying that this is a problem. This is a big problem, because Abram never possessed the land. As we continue to study the book of Genesis, we're going to see that never did he possess it at all, but the land remained occupied by the Canaanites. Abram never possessed it. He lived as a sojourner, and he died as a sojourner. The same would also be true of Isaac and Jacob, and indeed all of the offspring of Abram, Abram up until the days of Joshua. And so do you see the problem? God promised Abram, this will be yours and your offspring, but yours personally. I will give it to you and your offspring after you, he said. How then would Abram possess the land? Did God lie? Did he break his promise? Um, well, we also see that God said that it would be an everlasting possession, that it would be his forever. How can this be? How then would Abram possess the land in fulfillment to these promises? More than that, how would the land be to him an everlasting possession and to his offspring? The New Testament actually answers this question for us. It picks up on this idea here and this, you know, this apparent problem. In Hebrews 11.10, listen carefully, we read, For he, Abram, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer is and builder is God. Think about that for a moment. He... Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When he received these promises, that's what he was looking forward to. And again, in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, we read that these, namely Abram and Sarai and their offspring, they all died in faith, having not received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, listen carefully, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. What is the writer to the Hebrews saying? He's addressing this question how, how is this that God promised that Abram would possess the land and yet he died a sojourner? Did God not fulfill his promises? When the writer of the Hebrews addresses this question, his answer is no, God did not fail to fulfill his promises for Abram knew what God was up to. The land would be his in the resurrection. Not in this life, but in the life to come. And then it would in fact be his as an everlasting possession. When Abram heard and believed the promises of God, he set his eyes upon, he was looking forward to not the earthly land and not to an earthly city, but to a heavenly one. He understood to some degree that God's purpose was not just to give him and also his descendants a small sliver of land in Palestine, but through him to usher in a new heavens and earth through one of his offspring. That was what Abram was really looking forward to. And that is what Abram will have at the resurrection. The new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. This is the interpretation that the New Testament provides for us of this passage that we are now considering along with previous promises made to Abram 
in Genesis 12 through 17. I ask you this question, aren't you glad that we studied the book of Revelation prior to studying the book of Genesis? Just think about that for a moment. It seemed like a strange order, didn't it? We go from last to first. But there was a reason for it. Because there in the book of Revelation, we are provided with a clear picture of the finished product of God's redemptive work. There in the book of Revelation, we are provided with a full picture of the fully formed flower, if you will. Things as they are intended to develop in the end. And now we are going back and we are learning about the beginning of God's work of redemption, of things in seed form, if you will. And what the writer to the Hebrews explains is that when God made the promises to Abram, Abram understood to some degree that God's plan was to, through him, bring about what Revelation 21 describes. And what does Revelation 21 describe? New heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, which would one day descend from heaven. This is what Abram looked forward to. The land will be his as promised forever and ever in the resurrection, you see. And that is why we say that Abram sojourned in faith. He walked by faith and not by sight. Notice that the Lord also reiterated His promises to Abram concerning descendants. Not only would Abram have a multitude of offspring, but nations would come from him. In fact, kingdoms and kings would come from him. And the same was very much true of Sarai. Verses 15 through 20 make it clear that all of this would be accomplished through her. So, so much for their half-baked plan concerning Hagar. Remember that plan? You know, Abram, maybe I'm the problem. I'm barren. Why don't you take my servant and lay with her and bring about an offspring and I'll kind of adopt him as my own. Maybe, maybe that's what we should do. No, God says Sarai would have a son. His name was to be Isaac. Through him, the promises of God would be fulfilled. What was Abram's response to this announcement? He fell on his face and laughed at the thought that he would have a son at the age of 100, and that Sarai, who had been barren for all those years, would conceive at the age of 90. He even put Ishmael before the Lord and said, Lord, are you sure about this? Are you sure about this plan of yours, that Sarai is going to conceive and, and bear a son? May, may Ishmael live before you. you know? Maybe it would be better for you to do all of this through him. But the Lord instead said, No, but Sarah, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And he said, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I think it is interesting to note that offspring here is in the singular. And Galatians 3.16 makes much of this, saying that it points to Christ. The offspring is really Christ. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so through Isaac, the promises of God would be fulfilled. Through Isaac, the nation of Israel would be born. Through Isaac, ultimately, the Messiah would come who would usher in the new heavens and new earth through his finished work on the cross. Along with restating, clarifying, expanding the promises previously made, the Lord also renamed Abram and Sarah. I'm glad for that because I'd prefer to call them Abraham and Sarah. Uh, that is what we know them as best. And so from now on, we will do that. Verse 5, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. 
for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what the name Abraham means. It means father of a multitude. Verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name, not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarah means princess. These names are fitting. That's the point. God is promising to do something very specific and particular. Here He is transacting a covenant and He changes his, their names. Uh, the, he changes their names in order to reflect these promises. What a gift, really, when you think of it. So every time Abram and Sarai interacted with one another from that day forward, they said, my husband Abraham. And in that was a reminder of the promises of God. And, and Abraham then would say, my wife Sarah, the princess from whom kings will come. There's a reminder of the promises of God embedded within their names now. In what sense are Abraham and Sarah a father and princess of a multitude? Well, they are to be considered in a variety of ways. Through Ishmael, they would have many descendants. He would father 12 princes. Through Isaac, the nation of Israel would be born. Many kings would be among them in due time. But we must also remember the promise that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The New Testament makes it very clear that it is those who have faith, who have the faith of Abraham who are the true children of Abraham from amongst the Jews and Gentiles. I wonder, do you want to see a picture of what it means for Abraham to be the father of a multitude? What does that look like? What do you picture? When you, when you read that his name is now Abraham and that he is going to be a father of a multitude, what do you picture? Do you picture Old Covenant Israel, brothers and sisters? Do you picture... Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Egypt and then brought out at the hand of Moses, wandering in the wilderness, eventually led into the land promised to them by Joshua. Do you picture that group? I suppose it is right that you do, right? He is a father of a multitude in that sense. It is true, but, but you must picture more than that. Wouldn't you agree with me? You must, must picture more than that. Not only those who are Hebrew by ethnicity under the Old Covenant, but Jews and Gentiles also who have the faith of Abraham. If you want to see a picture of what it looks like for Abraham to be the father of a multitude, you'd need only to go to Revelation chapter 7 and read in verses 9 and, and following. After this, John looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are the children of Abraham. This is the multitude that God has brought about through him and through the Messiah who would come from his loins. These are the true children of Abraham. They share in his faith. They are united with him because they have believed upon his offspring in the singular, the one who has come from his loins, the Christ, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sins of the world. I am, as usual, dumping a lot on you all at once, but I hope that you're able to go away from the sermon to reflect upon it and see what is really going on here in this narrative, not in my opinion, but according to the interpretation that the New Testament gives. The writer to the Hebrews, Paul the Apostle, the book of Revelation, look all back upon these things and say, this is what it's really about. When God made these promises to Abram, he knew in some sense that really it was about not just the land that was before him and not just physical descendants, but something greater. His hope was in a city whose foundations and builder is God. His hope was in the new heavens and the new earth. That he will possess forever and ever. 
through faith in the Christ who had come from his loins. Wonderful, isn't it? I hope you enjoy this. It's enjoyable to me to bring it before you, and it's important to understand, for here the story of redemption is beginning to develop. It's in seed form here still. Maybe it's sprouted up just a bit. By the end of the book of Revelation, it's a fully developed flower, but we must recognize the story of God's redemptive activities in every stage of its development. Secondly, we need to observe that in this passage, the law of circumcision was added to the promises previously made. All of these things that we have considered so far are promises. They're promises concerning God, what God would do no matter what. But here the law of circumcision was added to the promises previously made. Look with me at verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. I will refrain from reading the rest of it, for we have already read it. But here, uh, Morris told to us about what God means specifically, about who should be circumcised. But then at the end of this passage, I believe it is verse 14, So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. What can we say about this? Well, Truth be told, a lot could be said about it, but because I've decided to take all of Genesis 17 in one sermon, I'll say five brief things for now. One, I think you all understand what circumcision is, and so I'll refrain from describing it in detail. Two, whereas only promises were made by God earlier, promises concerning land, descendants, kings, and kingdoms, now notice stipulations are added upon Abraham and his offspring. Uh, now there is some obligation that they have to do something. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So how are we to understand this? Well, we know that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would surely come to pass. How could they not? Who is the one making the promise? It is God. Does God break promises? No, He does not. And there are no stipulations attached to those promises concerning land and offspring and kingdoms. And so they will surely come to pass. The accomplishment of the promises were in no way contingent upon the faithfulness of man, only God. But as it pertained to the individual, to Abraham and his offspring, their enjoyment of the blessing of God in the covenant that was being transacted with them and in the land that would be given to them did depend upon their obedience. They were to keep the covenant, just as Adam was to keep the garden. It's the same word in the Hebrew. It's not a very common word, honestly. But you remember that Adam was said, your job is to keep the garden, defend it, protect it, maintain it from intruders, keep it holy and pure. Well, Adam was told to keep the garden, but Abram and his offspring are told to keep the covenant that is being made with them. Three, a positive law was imposed upon Abraham and his offspring, namely the law of circumcision. What is a positive law? What is a positive law? It is a law that is neutral, morally speaking, one that God simply chooses to add. That's the name positive. It is a positive law, one that God added, one that God threw in. It is neutral, morally speaking. There is nothing immoral about eating fruit from a tree, is there? 
And yet the Lord added that positive law when He spoke to Adam saying, Do not eat of that tree. If you do, you shall die. In that moment, it became sin to Adam if you were to eat of that tree that God identified. And in the same way, circumcision is nothing. We read a passage from Galatians a little earlier. It seemed contradictory, right? Abraham, be circumcised, you and your offspring. If you don't, you're going to be cut off from the covenant. Then Paul says, circumcision's nothing. It doesn't matter. And in fact, if you, now under the new covenant, are circumcised, you're severed from Christ because it shows that you're trying to earn your salvation through the keeping of the law. How, how can that be? Well, the reason is that this is a positive law. It's not a moral law. It was added So Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Circumcision means nothing, for it is morally neutral. But it was something for Abraham. It was something for his offspring and for Israel. Why? Because God made it something. God added that positive law that every male among them shall be circumcised. For Abraham or his offspring to disobey this commandment would mean that they broke the covenant of God. Just as the foreskin was to be cut off, so the covenant breaker was to be cut off from the people if they disobeyed. For circumcision is here called a sign. Verse 17, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. If it is a sign, then circumcision must signify something. For that is what signs do. Most basically, circumcision signifies that the individual to whom it was applied had been set apart as one of God's people. Circumcision marked off the people of God from the other nations. Circumcision was also a reminder of the promises of God that through the people, the Hebrew people, the nations would be blessed from them through the process of procreation. Think about where that sign is applied. Do I need to say more? Through the process of procreation, the Christ would eventually come. Circumcision was also a reminder of the covenant curse, that the covenant breakers would be cut off if they did not obey. Furthermore, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets used circumcision to urge the Hebrew people to be circumcised of heart. There were very many who descended from Abraham according to the flesh who were, uh, who were not truly Um, of Abraham according to the faith. They were truly in Abraham and under this covenant externally, were they not? But they did not have the faith of Abraham. They belonged to God in an earthly sense, but spiritually they were far from Him. And so the prophets would often use circumcision and say, you circumcised people, you Hebrews, according to the flesh, this isn't what matters. What matters is that you are circumcised according to the heart, that you have faith, that you are obeying God uh, day by day. In this covenant. Five, in the days of Moses, uh, many, many more positive laws would be added to the law of circumcision and imposed upon Israel as they were redeemed from Egypt. Like circumcision, they do not apply to us. For example, the observation of the Passover and other feast days, ceremonial washings, dietary restrictions, and the like. Circumcision would remain the sign of the covenant under Moses, for the Abrahamic covenant would give birth to the Mosaic covenant. But many more laws would be imposed. Obedience to these laws could not bring about the forgiveness of sins. But if obeyed, they would lead to blessings for the people of God as they lived in the land. To disobey would mean that the people would be cut off and taken 
into captivity. Are you tracking along with me? I say all of this because it's, you're going to be very confused reading the Bible if you don't understand these, these principles here. It only seems right to me that at this time I should say something about the importance of keeping God's law. seems to be an op- opportunity for application here. There is a moral law that all should be exhorted to keep. Do you agree with me on that? There is a moral law that all should be exhorted to keep, especially the Christian. We are to keep God's moral law as it is summarized in the Ten Commandments, not because we can be saved by it, for we have all transgressed it already. We are lawbreakers. But we are to keep God's moral law because it is right and out of gratitude for the salvation that has been freely given to us in Christ Jesus. By the way, the Sabbath command belongs to the moral law, for it has as its core, at its core, the proper worship of God, and it was established at creation. The Sabbath pattern was revealed first to Adam and not to Abraham or Moses, and I think this is significant. Um, So we must keep God's moral law. All should be exhorted to keep it, especially Christians. But it is also important to recognize that there are laws found in the Old Covenant that no longer apply to the people of God. For they belonged to other covenants that have been fulfilled by Christ and have thus passed away. I am here referring to positive laws. We might also call them ceremonial laws. You're not bound to keep those. Do not allow anyone to tell you that you are bound to keep those. You may eat pork, brothers and sisters. You may eat shellfish. You need not observe the seventh day, Jewish Sabbath, along with the many festival days that were attached to it. Our day of rest is Sunday, the Lord's day, for He is risen. And if the Lord blesses you with a son, you do not have to circumcise him. It simply doesn't matter anymore. For the Christ has come. The thing to which circumcision pointed has arrived He has already been born from Abram's loins. The covenant people of God in this new covenant era are no longer identified by their ethnicity. Who you father, who who your father is, or who your grandfather is, simply doesn't matter in this new covenant age, for the old covenant has passed away, the new has come. And how do we come to partake in the new covenant which was ratified in Christ's blood? Is it by birth? Is it by physical birth? No, it is by new birth by which we have been enabled to believe and to confess that Jesus is Lord and He is Christ. So there are many laws found in the Old Covenant, and the Christian might look at those and say, but aren't these a part of God's law? Aren't I to do these things myself? Aren't we to be concerned with obeying all that God's law has said? Well, yes and no. There are some laws that remain. They are God's moral laws. They remain for us. But there were many positive laws, ceremonial laws that were given even to Abraham, circumcision being one of them, that don't matter anymore. Circumcision is nothing, Paul says. It's morally neutral, but it was a positive law, a sign that was attached particularly to that covenant, to the Abrahamic covenant. And so many more examples could be given of those positive ceremonial laws that were added in the days of Moses. We do have positive laws of our own, though, in this new covenant era, don't we? And just as circumcision mattered greatly to Abraham and to his descendants, these positive laws should matter greatly to us, and we should be very careful to keep them. For us, there are two. What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
So let us be sure to observe them carefully, faithfully, and with reverence. If you have faith in Christ, I ask you, have you been baptized upon your profession of faith? I suppose that some might say, what does it matter? It's just a ceremony. It's just a sign. And while I agree that being dipped under the water is by itself a morally neutral activity, baptism for the Christian is of great importance to the Christian. For Christ has commanded that His disciples be baptized. He has added that positive law to us. And now we are bound to keep it. Being dumped under water, dipped under water, is a morally neutral thing. But for us it matters greatly. We must take care to obey the laws that Christ has given to His church. By it, by baptism, the new covenant of people of God are marked off as His own in the world. And something very similar might be said about the Lord's Supper. So let us be careful, faithful, and reverent when partaking of these signs which Christ, the Lord of the church, has instituted, which He has attached to the the new covenant useful in our worship. Two things have been observed thus far in this technical sermon. One, the promises of God previously made to Abram are here restated, clarified, and expanded. And two, in this passage, the law of circumcision was added to the promises previously made. The third and final observation is this, and this will be very brief. Abraham obeyed. Do you notice that Abraham obeyed? Look again with me at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among them. Abraham in his house, he he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. Just imagine the scene, brothers and sisters. Um, This must have been quite a day in Abraham's household. Can you imagine being his son at the age of 13 or one of his many servants, the men in his household? There were probably hundreds of men of age here. There were probably hundreds of men of adult age here. Probably over 400, actually. I say this because of what was told, us, told earlier to us about Abraham, Abram summoning the troops to go after Lot and to rescue him. So there were probably over 400 men, and I, and I do wonder what they thought. It must have been quite a scene. It was certainly a bloody scene, which I think is significant in and of itself. But the point that I am making is this. Abraham believed, and then he obeyed. And so did those who were with him. Abraham believed, and he also obeyed. And so I wonder, by point of application, are you prepared to live in obedience to God, even when doing so seems strange to those looking in from the outside? Are you willing to obey God when obedience to God is uncomfortable or unpopular? I would imagine that Abraham felt pressure from those of his household. (laughs) We're doing what? Yes, this is what we're doing because the Lord has commanded it. He has added to us and He has added to His promises this positive law. How could we not Obey them. Brothers and sisters, we need to have resolve within our lives personally to obey God at all costs, to obey His law. We need not obey things that God has not commanded. I have already warned against that. 
But we must be very careful to obey that which He has commanded. Not because we think we can be saved by our obedience, but out of gratitude for what Christ has done to us. He has accomplished our salvation, and now we serve Him. We know also that there is blessing found in this life associated with living in obedience to the commands of God. And so we must individually be careful to obey. And corporately also, brothers and sisters, Abraham obeyed, Isaac obeyed, but corporately his household obeyed. And we must be careful also to obey the commandments of God corporately as a congregation. In particular, we must be faithful to baptize and to observe the Lord's Supper according to the commands of Scripture. Abraham obeyed because he believed. He believed in the promises of God. His faith was in God and the Christ who would come from his loins. Abraham, by the grace of God, was able to look past the fleshly and the earthly to see the heavenly, spiritual, and eternal things that they signified. He did not just see land, offspring, and a bloody sign. He saw Christ. And he saw the new heavens and the new earth which would be purchased by him. For he, I will say it again, Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. May we have the faith of Abraham, and may that faith be accompanied by obedience, the obedience of Abraham in all things. Let us bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, your word is rich. Sometimes it is difficult to understand, but it is understandable. So help us as your people to diligently study your word. May we pay attention to what you have been doing in the world from the beginning, from the fall of Adam onward. We are so grateful for your grace. Though we transgressed your law and deserved only your curse, you have been merciful to provide a Savior. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that we, through him, will one day possess the land for all eternity. Not by our own merit, but by His. We thank You that by faith we are in Abraham's bosom, waiting patiently for the new heavens and earth which will be revealed at the proper time. What a joyous thing it is to consider that we will see Abraham in glory. We long to be together with that great multitude, that multitude from every tongue, tribe, and nation, giving worship to You, God, who sits upon the throne and to the Christ whom You sent. We thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we be found in him, believing upon him. May we be found living in obedience to him in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.